Uh, my name is Janet Harris, and I work at the University of Sheffield. And one of the things I'm working on is Realist Reviews. So I'm part of a team of people um, that set up a new international center in Liverpool for realist evaluation and synthesis, and we're organizing our first international conference this autumn. Um, I'm also a member of the Cochrane Qualitative and Implementation Research Methods Group, which um, has been working for the last 15 years to try to get qualitative evidence included in Cochrane reviews. And there has been some success lately. Um, there's, there's a review published now that's mixed methods, qualitative and quantitative, and a couple more on the way. So <clears throat> I have this bit of a background, a mixed background. Um, originally, I think it might be fair to say I was quantitative. Um, I managed public health programs. I um, worked for Centers for Disease Control. So I supervised a team of epidemiologists. And then HIV AIDS came along. And when that happened, we were having a terrible time trying to attract people into HIV counseling and testing services. And at that point, we became quite interested in something called community-based participatory approaches to designing interventions. I don't know if anyone's heard of those or not, which is basically involving the people who are going to be the recipient of the intervention and the people who provide it in the design of the research. So. Um, I'm explaining that because we're at an interesting point now, I think, with systematic reviewing where uh, there's some issues coming up. And I know you've been working on mixed methods this week, so I thought it might be really interesting to hear what some of your thoughts are about what's cropping up in these mixed methods reviews. So this is basically a story rather than a formal presentation with completed study results from, from a realist review. Um, but the story is kind of a pattern of what we found over the last three reviews that we've been working on. So I'll start going through it. And this is informal. So if you have questions, just wave your hand or jump in and, and, and ask me. Okay? So <clears throat> there's kind of a picture behind this, which you might not be able to see very well. But it's the picture of a river delta, which is going into Lake Superior, which is one of the great lakes which forms the border between Canada and the United States. And I put this picture up here because I'm going to use the research that was done in this area, which was research done with a Native American Indian population, to illustrate some of the challenges that we're running into when we try to use qualitative and quantitative research in a systematic review. So that's why the picture's up there. Now, this is a really quick PowerPoint just to set the overview, which is originally we had effectiveness reviews. Um, they were mainly done using study designs of randomized controlled trials. Um, in the late 1990s, there was interest in looking at introducing qualitative research into effectiveness reviews. So people started working on systematic reviews that use mixed methods, so including quantitative studies in the review as well as qualitative studies. And the method we're developing now is realist reviews using mixed methods. And I'll explain a little bit what the difference is between those. So if you're just doing a systematic review of effectiveness and you're including qualitative and quantitative research, this is a typical review question, which you might recognize the format of it. So when most people do mixed methods reviews right now, basically what they're doing is they're starting with the effectiveness side of the question. And they're saying, what is the effectiveness of a particular intervention? 
And for that side of the review, they're selecting quantitative studies, usually randomized controlled trials or controlled trials. And then they're adding on to that <coughs> the second question, which is qualitative and usually has to do with something to do with behavior. You know, what are people's attitudes or their, their perspectives towards something or their reactions towards something? And they're extracting the quantitative studies separately from the qualitative. They're analyzing what all of the quantitative data says about effectiveness. Then on this arm, they're analyzing what all the qualitative data says about people's experiences of receiving an intervention or perhaps providing an intervention. And after they've done the separate analysis, they're bringing them together in what you see up here is the cross-study synthesis. And they're using the qualitative as a way of answering the final question, which is what factors actually influence the effectiveness of the intervention. So that's the typical way right now of doing a mixed methods review. And there's a number of them being published nowadays. Now, and the data sources for this, as I've said, are effectiveness studies that have been published and qualitative research that's been published. Now, there's a couple of issues coming up with doing this. And I want to see if I can try and illustrate them today. Like I said, this is very much a work in progress. But one of the issues that's coming up is which kind of data is dominant? Have you talked about dominance this week in the data? And the reason that's coming up is because in some of these mixed methods reviews, they're getting quantitative results that are saying that an intervention is effective, but it's not unequivocally effective. It's effective some of the time, but they don't know why it's only effective some of the time, or it's effective for some people and not for others. And when they go into the qualitative research, sometimes they're getting an explanation for why it's effective or not. They can find factors that are influencing the effectiveness of it. But sometimes when they go into the qualitative research, they're finding other things that, have that, that are not necessarily directly related to the intervention, but people think they're really important. Okay, so for example, in <coughs> diabetes research, which is what we're looking at now in this review, a typical effectiveness question might be, um, what's the effectiveness of a short course in diabetes in terms of being able to control your blood glucose level? And so the intervention is a course, and they look at the qualitative research to see what people's experiences are of diabetes, and a lot of the qualitative research is not necessarily, um, the patients aren't valuing the education course itself. There are other things they're saying are effective in terms of helping them control their diabetes, which is totally outside the original intervention. So we've got this kind of mismatch. And I think you talked a little bit about this, about paradigms and worldviews, about what's important in terms of an outcome. And what's starting to come up in this research is that the people that design the intervention are deciding that one kind of outcome is important, but the people that are actually experiencing the condition have a different idea about what the important outcome is. So we have an issue coming up about whether you can compare these studies or not. And so this is where we're starting. <coughs> now, when we go on to realist reviews, realist reviews have a different sort of question. And it doesn't necessarily start by focusing all of the attention on the intervention. So a, a, a realist review does ask what works, which is the intervention. But they're saying, who does it work for? because the assumption is that the intervention might work better or not as well, depending on what group you're in, what culture, uh, you know, whether you're male or female, your age. And it's also saying that the circumstances surrounding the intervention may influence 
whether it's effective or not. So for example, someone who's di diagnosed with di diabetes over the last month, an educational intervention may be more or less effective for them than it is for somebody who's had diabetes for 10 years. So they're saying you need to take this factor into account of time, which if you look at individual studies, they very rarely talk about that at all. And then the third thing that they talk about is the circumstances. So it's not just at what point in time that you're diagnosed, but it's also what kind of family do you live in? You know, does your family support healthy eating or not? Do you live in a family that exercises regularly or not? So the circumstances are about the context that actually surrounds the fact that you may have been diagnosed with diabetes and you're going on an education course to learn how to control it. So a realist perspective, which is pragmatic, I think you've talked about that a little bit this week, is coming at this from the point of view of will things be effective? Yes, they'll be effective, but the relative effectiveness is dependent on the surrounding context around the intervention and a number of other factors. So they're saying it all depends, rather than a typical effectiveness review, which would say what works and what they're trying to come out with is what works all the time for everybody, for the, gen for the general population or the, or the population of interest. So when you're ex looking for information and realist reviews, yes, you look for qualitative studies that have been published. You look for quantitative studies, too, that have been published. But because you're wanting to look at the it all depends side of it, you're also looking for a range of other information sources. For example, evaluation reports. Um, often big reports are written on programs, but they aren't necessarily published in a peer-reviewed journal. Policy papers, grade literature. And those are the main sources of data in, in a realist review. Now, what I put down here at the bottom is these other sources. And I put them here because the last realist review we did was a realist review of um, does peer support work to help people in terms of increasing their health literacy. And when we did this review, we suspected that there was another source of information, which is the providers themselves, the, the, the workers, the volunteers, you know, unpaid people in the community that are providing peer support every day, but aren't necessarily part of a research study. And so we wanted to find out <coughs> in the published literature what's effective with a peer support intervention. But also when you go out and you ask providers and patients and clients who are receiving peer support what works in what circumstances, is what they're saying matching up to what you see in the published literature. And to make a long story short, like in two sentences or less, at the end of the process, it was obvious that there was a big disconnect between what the literature said about effective peer support and what the people said who actually provided it. So this is about complex interventions, you know, the components of an intervention. And one of the things that was most noticeable is that the researchers who've, who've done extensive research on peer support say that there are certain types of peer support that are used in healthcare. One is giving people information, one is giving them emotional support, uh, affirmational, kind of cheering them on, telling them that they can achieve something that's difficult. But the reviews in healthcare have said that a type of peer support that's never offered in health is the practical kind of showing people how to do things or showing them how to get somewhere. But when we went out and we talked to patients and providers, and we had over 200 involved in the, in the review, they said that's actually the most important type of peer support. 
So what's happening here is something that's really essential to the providers, that's something important, and something that's, that's important to the recipients is not considered something important when the researchers are constructing the intervention. So we have something strange going on here. So that was the last review. That one's finished. That one's published. Um, and we moved on to the next review, which is this diabetes one that we're looking at now. So in diabetes, we're asking um, whether public and patient involvement is, is influential in terms of designing and offering diabetes support programs. And we're finding something which, to me anyway, looks kind of similar to what we found in the peer support review. So what's happened here, and I've, I've picked out one study out of, we found um, 135 studies. Uh, I've chosen one study, and I've chosen this study because this wasn't just one study. This was a big program of work which was set in northern Wisconsin on Lake Superior um, with a Native American tribe up there, and Alexandra Adams, who's the, her name's up at the top there, um, she and her team have actually published, we've so far found 10 publications on this, on this program of work. And what this 10 publications have enabled us to do is to look at kind of the story of the development of a large research project rather than just looking at one published paper. So way back in 2004, the um, initiative started because they noticed that there was um, you know, a high rate of prevalence in children. And the children they were interested in were children that were between the age of two and five. So they realized there was some kind of problem here and something needed to be done. And this is where it kicked off. They went to the government. They got national funding for this. Um, the funding was long term, which doesn't, doesn't always happen. Now along the way, rather than researchers coming in to this community and saying, we know what works with diabetes education, the tribes, the Native American tribes in North America are actually um, viewed as autonomous states. So um, they, aren't, they, aren't nece they don't necessarily come under the federal government and they have rights in terms of what research is done on them. So the community advisory board here is actually a group of people who are members of the tribe who decide what's going to happen in their community. So immediately from the point of view of doing research in a community, there's a different dynamic here than you'd have in many different communities. So researchers from the University of Wisconsin had to work with this community advisory board to get access to the community in order to do the research. So this is how, this is how the research started out. Now, knowing that they have this high prevalence rate, and I know you've been doing this all week, so I don't know if you're tired of this right now. <laughs> But you know they have a high prevalence rate. Um, children between the ages of two and five are, are at risk. Um, where do you start in terms of designing an intervention? Any ideas? Because... Okay, so antenatal clinics could be one place, right? Any other ideas? Where to start? And you're saying with that it would be education, <laughs> nutrition. Yeah. yeah. 
cooking classes. Community food supplies. Yep. Yep. So there's something here about the environment, right? Which fits into the realist review to take that into account. Has anybody worked with Native American Indians before? Okay. So this is one of the things that we find quite often. When we first start designing a research project, if we know very little about the topic area, we have to go back to what we know, our own frame of reference, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. But we need to keep in mind that our frame of reference is going to influence the design of the intervention. And if we aren't including the people who are actually going to receive the intervention in the design of it, then there's a risk that we're going to choose something that may not necessarily be appropriate for the community. <coughs> and I can see people nodding because this isn't rocket science, it's, it's common sense, right? But the strange thing is that when you look at this research, and I'm not saying in the, just in the diabetes study because we found this in the peer support. The peer support study actually looked at peer support across breastfeeding, um, HIV safer sex, uh, diabetes, nutrition, lifestyle, physical activity, um, cardiovascular disease. So we had a number of different health issues that people receive peer support with. And in every single one of those health issues, we found this disjuncture. The people who were designing the peer support programs were not the people that were going to provide the peer support, and they weren't the people including the peer support. So we started to wonder whether this was important or not, which is why we're doing the review we are now. So these are some, some ways that you can come at it. And where would you start with quantitative or qualitative or where would you start? <laughs> you just got a clue, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, talk to some people, which is incredibly difficult for researchers. Um, and it's coming up now in the, in the review that we're doing. It's tough for researchers. It's a different, different world for them. Uh, and uh, researchers uh, have already have ideas about works, especially if they w they've been f working in a field for a certain length of time. And uh, when, if you go and you talk to other people and you're getting their opinions about works, what works, then you're having to take account of those opinions, and in some cases you're having to change the study design. And the researchers in some of these qualitative studies are saying, that is a scary thing for us. It feels like we're losing control of the study. And if we include all these opinions about what the intervention ought to look like, then at the end of the day, is the study going to be just as scientifically rigorous if we're including, for example, lay people's opinions and what it should look like as it would be if it's, if it's designed by people who are academics? So there's, there's a, a kind of tension going on here about appropriateness of study design and how do you, how do you come at that? Can I ask a question mm -hmm. about that community? I mean, Yourself, what's going on on a superficial level, but get at 
impact what's going on in the community level. Maybe they don't have fathers around. Maybe there's no mother at home. Yeah. Is it, and the other thing, is this a genetic predisposition or is this all the kids not being active, eating cheese yeah. in front of the television with no parents? Yeah. So I'm trying to, so that might actually help you because then when they buy mm -hmm. into it, they see it as it's a community fix. Mm -hmm. It's not just about the kids, it's, it's seeing the broader picture. Mm -hmm. And when they have multiple programs, mm -hmm. it might be able to help them. Yep, yep. So bigger picture, right? What's the bigger picture around this? What might cause it? And then depending on what causes it, maybe it's not a single intervention, right? Maybe it's more than one intervention, which would be a community view usually toward it. Mm -hmm. So for instance, um, and what I'm thinking the Himalayas, the Darjeeling, mm -hmm. the Jesuits have a thing up there where they, they were trying to get an anti-net mother's nutrition in pregnant women. And what they realized is they actually had to feed everybody, including the father, because the father yeah. always ate first, right? So then they developed a, a program to teach women to weave, right, so that they could sell their products in Canada, and then there was a whole nutritional educational program. And so that's how they actually got to, you know, better nutrition for moms and yep. men, unborn babies. It's looking upstream from the mm -hmm. intervention, yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is not something that we always do in academia. And um, the kind of... I, well, I could say that. I, was, I came to academia very late in life. Um, but there's another reason we don't do it in academia, and that's because we're not funded to do it. And we're not only not funded to do it, but if you look at the career track in academia, people don't get points for doing this kind of research. It's not considered scientific. And also, I mean, you've, you've just done a wonderful kind of account of doing the research. The problem is it takes time. And in academia, there's a pressure on you to be publishing something every single year from your research, at least one thing, if not two or three. And this kind of research, and like you're saying, going in and uh, becoming more of an insider and developing an understanding of the community, a lot of times when people are doing that, it doesn't look like anything's happening because you're not actually doing the research yet. You're setting up the relationship for designing an appropriate intervention. And most of the places in the world don't fund us to design appropriate interventions. They fund us to get in there and produce some results within a year. And if you look at most of the funding, and if you read most of the research articles, you'll see that the duration of the study was 12 to 18 months. And at the 18-month at the mark, they're starting to publish results because that's the pressure to publish results, which is a big issue in something like diabetes because it takes longer than 12 to 18 months for most people to show a health outcome, which is better control of blood sugar. So, because that's like one of the last outcomes in the line, you know, after all sorts of other things, the eating, the activity, whatever. So there's, a, there's, a, there's a, I think, a big issue here about, about what we're funding, to be honest. And I think that some of what we're funding, maybe um, we could be producing better evidence, I'm arguing. So I put this up here. I think you've talked about some of these things this week, right? I'm not sure. But just from the ideas that you've given me so far, um, some of the ideas here, some of the ideas that you've brought up. When we're designing something, um, what usually happens at the very beginning is what you saw a couple of PowerPoints ago. Someone publishes some statistics or they do some screening, and so they're raising a red flag that something's wrong. And the initial red flag is usually something statistical in the world of health research. That's where it starts. So the phenomenon of interest to begin with for a lot of health research is epidemiological. 
because we have statistics that show that something's not working properly or people are at risk. Now, based on what that phenomenon of interest is, <coughs> people take an epistemological stance. So in other words, they say, this is the problem as we see it. So the problem is that, let's say, 26% um, of children um, are, showing, are, are at risk for diabetes. Um, since this is the problem, that there looks like there's, there's a high prevalence rate or, or, or a high prevalence for being at risk of diabetes in, in the population here, then the answer to this problem, the way we're framing this problem, is to get the rate down, to get the prevalence rate down. And so the solution that they design is directly linked to the definition of the problem. Now, if you looked at this differently, like you were just describing, and said um, the problem is community food, healthy choices, if you start there, then your epistemological stance is different, isn't it? Because it's about saying, I'm framing the problem as a community problem, as a problem where maybe people can't make healthy choices. And when I look at it that way, my intervention is going to be different than it might be if I, if I come up with another problem definition, if you see what I mean. So one of the things we're arguing for here is that people need to be aware at the very beginning of the design of a study that there are different ways of defining what the problem is and the way that I might define it as the researcher could be very different from the way that people in the community see the problem themselves. And it's, it's one of the first things that we should be asking when we read a research study, who was involved actually in defining what the problem was because it's like a domino effect you can end up with a study design down here that was one that, that was based on, on my view of the problem as the researcher. It's a problem. So what do we do in a realist review? One of the ways that realist reviews and realist research in general is different from other types of research is that context is one of the most important things in the research. So if you look at a typical um, quantitative effectiveness study, the emphasis is on the intervention and the population and the outcome. And the assumption is that the intervention will always be delivered the same. And if you deliver it in the same way to the same population, you're going to be able to achieve similar outcome, right? So it's all based on generalizability, transferability. And um, what the realist point of view is arguing for, the kind of circumstantial evidence we talked about earlier, is I could have an excellent intervention, but if the context is different, then the intervention is either going to be more supported or more constrained depending on what's happening in the, in the surrounding environment. So if we take this, this, this bit about the community food here as an example, if I do the diabetes intervention in Boston, Massachusetts, in one of the well-off areas of the city, big urban area, tons of food choices, lots of food competition in terms of cheap prices, and I offer the same intervention to the Bad River Tribe, it looks like the same intervention. They're both getting education. They're both being taught how to make healthy choices. They both have cooking classes. They both, they all, they both learn how to read the labels on, on food before they buy it. Um, they both show that they become very well educated. We could do a knowledge test. They could become well educated about what type of food they should be buying, what they should be eating. And at the end of the day, it's going to be less successful in the Bad River area than it is going to be in the Boston area because there's a big context factor there, which is money. It could also be time. Um, the map that I showed you earlier, you may have noticed there were no roads there. I mean, this is a really isolated, really isolated community. Um, it's right out there on a piece of land in the Great Lakes. Um, to, get to, the, to, to get to anything beyond the small community store is going to be about an hour's drive. You need to have money for petrol. You need to have transportation. So they don't have a lot of choices. 
can I ask you, if they don't have a lot of choices and there's no roads, where's the ins so where is the the junk food, so to speak? I mean, is it that it's it's more what sort of food is it? Is it more sort of um, not as nutritious um, sort of prepackaged stuff? I mean, what sort of foods are there? I mean, I would have thought more rural, perhaps there might have been a bit more subsistence in terms of you know, even growing some of your own stuff if it's mm. remote and it's poor. Mm -hmm. um, so what are the, you know, what are the unhealthy food choices? Mm -hmm. They're bringing in the unhealthy food, so that's one of the problems because uh, there isn't a, a good level of awareness in the community store about what food should be brought in. Um, so the, the community store's bringing in unhealthy food? Yes. Yeah. Um, the community store says that the residents like that and they expect it. The unhealthy food is cheaper than the healthy food because fresh fruit and veg can be quite expensive. In terms of growing food, there's a, actually a limited amount of arable land there. I mean, it's hard to see on this, um, on this map, but um, if we go back to the start, you might be able to see a little better. This, it says Bad River Slough over here. So this is a marsh area. In this area, they used to grow wild rice which um, is actually um, a gourmet food and, and uh, you know, you can, you, in the United States, anywhere in Canada, you know, people pay a lot of money for it. Um, but they had industry come into the area, polluted the water, uh, problems growing the wild rice. So that, as a cash crop, started to disappear. They've been campaigning about that for a number of years. So they lost a food staple there. They also had a number of local berries in the area, fish, same kind of thing. Industry moved in and they've, they've had problems with pollution. So they're trying to fix that, which is another big contextual barrier. And they're looking now at establishing cranberry bogs because cranberries is a good cash crop and it's something that would definitely grow there. But very boggy areas are not only boggy, but um, the kind of bog area shifts, if you see what I mean. So it's like marshland. You don't know from you know one month to the next where it's going to be safe to be walking, for example. So they have a real challenge in terms of the in terms of the food supply, but they could get the healthy food in. So these kind of contextual things are the things that you need to think about when you're designing the intervention. The other thing is people, their attitudes and their behaviors. Um, what are their attitudes going to be if you change the, the food in the community store? Will they feel like they have any control over that? Um, and those things can influence how you actually get to your outcomes at the end of the day. And that's what was happening in this in this area. So we talked about this, the physical environment. So they went out and they interviewed people in the Bad River community. They interviewed parents, uh, community leaders, children, and they looked, they wanted to know what are the issues not just about food but about other typical advice that you would give people who are at risk for diabetes, healthy lifestyle, staying active. And the mothers said, it's not safe for our kids to play outside. And there were a couple of different reasons for that. One was that they have terrible weather, terrible. Um, blizzards in the winter. Uh, you've seen the lack of roads. Very few paved areas. And another reason that it's unsafe to play outside is because there's now a high level of unemployment rate in the community. And there is drinking and there, there's drugs. And so there's crime also. So parents are concerned about their children being safe and being able to supervise them and see them so that they're playing nearby. 
so that's an issue. Um, there are some play areas, but they're far away, like it says up here. Um, they lack transport, or they lack the money for the, for the petrol to take their children there, or they lack the time if they're working to stay with the kids. We talked about the supermarkets. But they also had an attitude toward health. And what they were saying was they didn't define health as somebody who was the right weight or physically active. They defined healthy as their children being happy. And happiness meant things like they like watching TV. They like playing media games. You know, some of this was about inactivity, not necessarily activity. And so their priorities were keeping the children safe and making sure that they were happy. And this is the way that they framed it. And it didn't occur to them to frame healthy eating or physical activity as something that would make children happy or families happy. It wasn't part of, part of the way that they conceptualized things. So if you put all this together and you think about typical interventions for diabetes, there were many reasons why they weren't going to be acceptable in the community, if that makes sense. Yeah? So can I just ask, they had, must have a school there somewhere where they have a gym. They, they do. Some kind of protected place where they could play potentially. They do. And the teachers and the curriculum was set up so that they had maybe 15 minutes in the morning for physical activity, and the rest of the day was spent on other, other things. So there was a lack of awareness on the adult level that was affecting this as well, if you see what I mean. So there wasn't a lot of play time or a lot of, a lot of activity time in general, even in the school. It wasn't happening. Well, the interesting thing is this is not rocket science. No. But to change it is just so difficult because we have exactly the same problems with our own Indigenous people in Australia. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's multiple problems there, but to fix them shouldn't be that hard, but it's unbelievably difficult. Yeah, and it's not rocket science. No, it's not rocket science. It's, it's anybody with half a brain could see that these are issues yeah. that an individual person couldn't fix. Mm -hmm. So we need to do it in the community mm -hmm. to get the political support mm -hmm. and the finances to do those almost impossible. Yeah. So we keep putting band-aids on it down mm -hmm. And is it because they want to fund one intervention rather than yeah, this kind of... Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's the same for this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And the only reason this got funded is because there was a policy window, a window of opportunity. Mm -hmm. And the window of opportunity was that... Um, uh, there's epidemiological data now on all indigenous people in North America that has to do with diabetes. There's a really strong case for it being a risk factor across all of the tribes. Um, politically, uh, the history goes way back, but you know a lot of the ill health problems in the tribe were caused or contributed to by people losing their land. So there was um, a political will to put money into this as a long-term solution, not just a short-term Band-Aid. And they funded these programs, not just here, but in, um, I, I think if I remember, 53 locations in the United States. And it was funding for 10 years. And, and they basically said, we don't know how to fix this. So you, you'll have longitudinal funding to go in and figure out what needs to be done. So it's kind of a luxury program from that point of view that so they got to do this. It's a problem that you're being paternalistic because we do have a problem of being seen as being paternalistic if we were trying to make some major changes like changing the community, what's in the shop, etc., etc. How did you mm -hmm. deal with the criticism that you are you know, white 
people coming in and being paternalistic to the indigenous community? Well, the first thing that happened, um, and I didn't work in this community, and I've been in England for a long time now, like 20 years, but I did work in, in indigenous communities in, in British Columbia. The first thing that happened was Centers for Disease Control realized that there was a problem with this paternalism. So Centers for Disease Control had a condition on this funding which said you have to use participatory approaches to design the research. Um, they also said there is no way that we are going to fund any kind of research intervention unless it's been approved by the tribe. Um, we want uh, demonst demonstrated evidence that you've involved the tribe at every single step of the design of the interventions. Uh, the tribe gets to sign off. They had contracts. So the tribe controlled the money, not the researchers. And the researchers were co-applicants for the money, but the application actually came from the tribe itself with the researchers um, skilling them up a bit. So they had to start uh, co-producing an intervention before they could even just, um, apply for the money. And they had to set up a good enough relationship so that they were all happy about the interventions before they applied. Otherwise, it was, they weren't going to get the money. So the tribe came up with some ideas for interventions. They were initiated by them. But the researchers contributed by coming in and saying, based on what we know about diabetes research, these are things that have worked in other places. Now, they might not work for you, but it is what's worked in other places. So they went through this process of giving them the ideas from other places, the tribal council getting together and saying, I think that will work, I don't think that will, I think we could do this quicker, this might take a lot longer. And so they kind of developed this staged program of work and they started picking off what looked like the things that the community would agree to the most easily first. And they also didn't couch it as an intervention, like a diabetes intervention. So, um, you know, you're mentioning the school. Um, they, they did a survey and asked at the school um, whether the kids wanted more games and activities. Of course, people were saying yes. So they worked with the teachers and framed it as, as being, you know, having more games and activities at school. And of course, one of the, the side effects was that they started measuring the levels of physical activity to see if they went up. So I guess you could say it's kind of an indirect intervention in a way. And with the healthy eating part of it, um, yes, they had cooking classes, but they were things where they got the parents and the children together, and um, they did crafts. Um, they had games for kids to play where they were running around in the gymnasium while they were doing the cooking class, so they were active. And um, they were showing them how to cook things together that people like to eat. So it was, it was all about um, more of a group activity or family activity orientation rather than an intervention. And they were things that the tribe wanted to do. Yeah, and they had them, but it was the, th the thing of the kids who were good were on the team and then the ones that were overweight were kind of at the sidelines, so they had to work on changing that, too. Yeah. They co-delivered it, and it was a requirement of the funding. So every time that they wrote an article or did a presentation, they had to go back to the tribal elders and say, this is what we um, think we're finding, this is how we think we should disseminate the results, what do you think? And then they got comments from the community advisory board, and they had to show in writing how they'd addressed each one of the comments. So, and the reason they did that is because in participatory research, there's what's called levels of participation, and the bottom level is informing, and the second level up is consulting. And a lot of what happens is we say that we consulted with people, but really what I've done, 
I, I hope not me personally, but um, is I've asked your opinion and I've nodded and I've said yes, thank you very much and I've gone up and designed the study, but when you look at it, you can't see anywhere where I've used your opinion. But I say I've consulted you. And they wanted to avoid that, so they said you need to document in your meeting minutes um, what the suggestions have been from the Community Advisory Board and then you either need to include them in both the research design and the way you implement the intervention and the way you write it up, or if you're not going to include it, you need to give a reason why. And that was about maintaining trust with the community because if you destroy that kind of trust, then they're not going to let the researchers in anyway. And then the whole thing is scuppered. And that was one of the big concerns. Yeah? And that's what they used here. A lot of it's about credibility. I think it links to what you're saying about um, whether you're an insider or an outsider. So if you get the community approving the idea, then the community gives you, as the outside researcher, more credibility than you would have normally because they've given it their stamp of approval. But it's, it's even easier if you have some insiders who are on your research team Absolutely. that are actually in the community. And there were two doctors. Um, one of the doctors was from this tribe. And the other one wasn't from this tribe, but had worked with the tribe for decades. And they, both of them raised the red flag in the first place about the risk in the children. So everyone paid attention to it. And then they supported the ideas for the research. And it made it go faster than it would normally. So yeah, it started with the community part and went on from there. I wanted to put this one up because this is one of the issues if you're trying to do a review of this. Because a systematic review, you're normally including individual studies. So if I was doing an effectiveness review on a diabetes intervention, I probably would find the randomized controlled trial, this one here, by Alexandra Adams and her co-authors, and I'd include that in the review. If I was doing a mixed method systematic review, not a realist one, but just a mixed methods review, then I might find the RCT by Adams, and I might find this one because it's qualitative, and then I would include those two in the review. But the question we have, and there isn't an answer for this yet, but the question is how many of these studies do you include if it's a realist review, and your question is about what works at what point in time. Any ideas about that? I don't have an answer. I mean, we're trying now to include them all. <coughs> and we've actually invented a different way of searching for studies as a result of this. And, and Sharon and I are trying it out with, with um, someone on another project. So, and, and, and the case that we're making is, if I only see the ICT, I don't have the history of how it was developed. So what if that ICT, for example, um, reported that it had problems with recruitment 
Or what if the RCT said we met our recruitment um, target of 200 families, but over the two years that we ran the randomized controlled trial, we had a dropout rate of 21%. You know, should I be worried about that? I mean, normally when you appraise one RCT, you would you would make one decision about it, but you you know, is there a problem in terms of that dropout rate? Who is it that dropped out? And are they the people that are really important in terms of looking at the effectiveness of the intervention? So we decided that we would include all of these. And it looks like it's a lot of extra work to do that, which means it's also, from a research point of view, a lot of extra money. So when we included them, we said to ourselves, we're going to include them, but we're going to ask ourselves whether there's any added value in looking at the entire family of studies, we call it a cluster of studies, to reconstruct the picture of the entire research project, or is, is there not enough added value in it? And what we actually found was that some of the things that actually were quite important to the RCT weren't reported in the RCT paper. Okay, they were reported in this one, this one, this one. So that's about having a limited number of words that you can, you can use in a journal article and what are you going to include as important information and what are you going to leave out. And this study at the end, which we thought, Oh, it's just the story of how the project was set up. It's not going to tell us anything new. But because they wrote it after 10 years of working with this tribe, and they were looking back and kind of reflecting on what they'd learned, they actually said some things that were quite important about why part of some of these interventions worked well and some of them didn't. So we've left them all in. But now that we found this, that there's only partial reporting of important things in each one of these studies, the question that we're left with is, is this happening in other areas of research? And if it is, then are our systematic reviews really good quality? Or are they just giving us a snapshot of the research? And the snapshot might not necessarily be telling us why it works. I guess, could you include the grant application in your realist review then? Because it's essentially, I was talking to Sharon about this a couple of days ago. You could. You're essentially reconstructing the grant. You are. <laughs> You're reconstructing a program theory? I hope you guys talked about program theories. Because just to go over that really quickly, when people start out designing a research study, they have an assumption, a set of assumptions. And the set of assumptions are that this ought to work. Okay. So you offer the intervention. Let's say it's diabetes education. And you're saying, I'm assuming that diabetes education is going to work because when I give it to this group of people, their knowledge about diabetes is going to increase, about diabetes risk. Their skills in terms of managing it are going to increase. And their attitudes about it are going to change. So a change in attitude. So these are your assumptions here, right, when you design it. But what happens is you start out with these assumptions when you write the original research protocol, right, for what you want to measure. But sometimes while you're going through the study, you end up with a learning curve because you're learning a lot more about these people. And as you learn more about them, you're realizing that some of your original assumptions maybe weren't quite right. So your program theory starts to change even during the lifetime of offering the intervention and measuring it. There's a shift in, in, in theory of change in what works and why it ought to work. And we're thinking that in one single study that's published, you don't get the whole picture. Does that go to those changes? I mean, I guess it depends on the research group, but those kind of changes go back to the granting agency and the annual reports? 
sometimes, in this case they did because they had really comprehensive annual reports, but some funding organizations don't ask for those. So, you know, it depends, it depends on the kind of funding. Yeah. Yeah, so it really just reflects the fact that so much research is so, much, is so compartmentalized. Yes, it is. You know, especially, I mean, in this sort of work in diabetes, you can imagine umpteen dozen studies looking at separate little areas. And you're right, we're certainly going to have certainly, you know, certain response rates, mm -hmm. dropout rates, the whole works. But, I mean, your first question, your first comments really sort of, I think, hit the nail on the head for this sort of work in that, it's not in academic units are not encouraged no. to follow through. You're encouraged to do the and f the funding mm -hmm. bodies perpetuate. Really, I mean they, they yeah they like do. The short, sharp, defined you know grants and a lot of the small studies that you see published are you know fifty thousand, hundred thousand mm -hmm. dollar grants from small granting bodies mm -hmm. that want a nice, neat, defined study that they want to be knocked over in a year or two years and yeah. get on with the next one. It's true, and it's a waste, a waste of money. It. How do you change it? Yeah, how do you change it? We all keep talking about it in, this, in sort of public health and these sorts of areas, but how do you change it? I think we change it the same way that we managed to change some things with Cochrane, because the Cochrane Colloquium managed to point out that, I don't know how many researchers, thousands, were basically doing the same study in different places, and no one was building on what was known before. So the idea of systematic reviews came out of that, and it's become a big industry. I think we could change this by pointing out that, um, or going back to some systematic reviews, I'm not saying all of them, but going back to systematic reviews where they're reviewing interventions which are about attitudes and behaviors, where the attitudes and behaviors are key and cultural acceptability and appropriateness, and reanalyzing some of what's in the review using some of these perspectives to see if we can try and explain the variation. And I think if we put together enough of those cases, we could make a, a convincing argument for um, putting some more requirements on the funding in terms of what they'll fund. Um, and I think we'll get there because the National Institute of Health and Care Excellence here in England now, they want to start funding realist review. And they want to start funding it because they're concerned about, about some of this. And it's not just coming from places like the National Institute of Health and Care Excellence. There are, well, like in where I work in Shire, there's a big randomized controlled trial unit. And these people just churn out trials. They've been doing it for decades. And the people in this trials unit are saying, can we please have workshops on realist methods and mixed methods? Because we're doing our trials, and we know that we have problems with them. And one of the huge problems is recruiting people into a trial. And everybody knows that it's a big problem, and they also know that it ends up being a major expenditure on some of your, some of your RCTs because it's difficult to get people to join. And they're starting to realize that if you use some of these methods, it's quite easier, not quite easy, but it's easier to get involvement in the trial than you would have originally. So I think that there's going to be some opportunity to go back and, and, and look at some of these things. And the other, the other driver, I think, is, and um, I chose diabetes as the example on purpose, if you go in and you search for diabetes interventions, there are, there are hundreds and thousands of them around the world. And if you bothered to do a mapping exercise and categorize them by the type of intervention, there are hundreds and hundreds of thousands that are all the same diabetes education intervention. So it's like people are taking the same educational program and reproducing it in very different places 
and not and not saying it works in some places and not working in others, but they're not putting those results together to look at why it's working in some places and not others. So, so it's obvious that something needs to be done in terms of managing the money more effectively, I think, than it is now. Isn't it then also a problem that successful ones get published and the others don't? Yes, it is. And, and that was the other... I'm glad you brought that up because that was the other reason I put this up here. Because when we first searched for these, um, we use kind of traditional methods for searching for uh, articles. And of course we found the ones that were published in the big peer-reviewed journals like this one. Um, and we found this one because um, there's surveys here and, and this one here um, came into the realm of quantitative um, more clinical type research, and so they were published in um, well-recognized journals. But then we started using this method of searching where you're looking for what these articles referenced, both forwards in time and backwards in time. And we also um, looked for any mention that they had in any article of doing any kind of research you know, in, an, in another part of this project, which again takes time. But when you look at the order in which they're published, they weren't published in this order, even though this was the order of activity. And the reason they weren't is because the journals aren't interested in some of this stuff. So this thing really should have been published a lot earlier. You know, this was the account of how they set up the relationship with the tribal council, um, how they got ideas from the tribal council about, about what kind of interventions to have in the community, the kind of how they, they establish an equal power balance in terms of relationships and working together. That should have come up here somewhere instead of way down there. And um, the perceptions of the environment, again, that work was done a lot earlier. And it was key down here. It actually happened down here and helped them decide what interventions to have. But it was qualitative, so it wasn't published until years later. So the publication pathway was, was interesting. And I, it's, I think it's a form of, of bias. And some of them were in very obscure journals. So anything that had to do with the participatory approach um, we had to order those, those articles on interlibrary loan. Even though we have access to a huge library, you, you, you couldn't get them. So, yeah. It's have you found with open access that kind of issue has gotten better, or has it changed? It's gotten better, but not all the journals are open access yet. And, and some of them are not, they just aren't set up as open access. Um, you know, the, the, these were in journals like the Journal of the Poor and Underserved, for example. Um, and, you know, it's just not a big journal. So a challenge. So that's our challenge right now. And we are going to include all the studies this time because we think that there's, there's, it's a worthwhile exercise in terms of looking at whether it should be done before. I don't know whether we'd do it for everything, but we will for this. So to kind of round up the story, once we looked at this and found a whole family of articles, we said, well, maybe we have some other families. So we went back to the 135 articles that we thought were relevant for the review, and we found nine other families. So there are nine other pro projects out there that have published between three and ten articles on their work. So we, we, have, we can reconstruct what happened in the in them. So the point that we learned, and this is something that we learned with the last peer support review, but it's actually coming up here too. Um, there's a couple of authors in health promotion called Tones and Green, and they've said that you can find two different types of intervention in health, and you find this in public health too. And they call them authoritarian and negotiated, and they don't necessarily mean that in a negative way. 
I mean, if you think of, for example, disaster relief situations, um, you wouldn't want to negotiate what your intervention was. You just need to take an authoritarian stance and go in there and use your expertise and do something. But basically, the authoritarian intervention, for whatever reason, gets designed by experts outside of a community, and then it's brought into a community. Sometimes it's called community-based, but it isn't actually community-based. It's brought in and it's done to people to either reduce risk or improve health, whatever. And the other side is the negotiated ones, which is what this um, Bad River Tribe one was, where the community itself is designing what needs to happen, and then they're doing it on themselves or with themselves rather than having the outsiders come in and do it. Now, I said that one wasn't necessarily worse than the other, depending on the situation, but for the peer support review, we actually found a pattern because peer support is about getting people connected to other people, getting them connected to their community, helping them build social networks so they can manage their own condition. So it's very much a kind of behavioral and emotional type of support. And in that review, the interventions that were authoritarian were less effective than the ones that were negotiated. And we, we questioned that. We said maybe we're looking for that. So then we looked at them by stage because first you have the design the intervention stage and then you have recruit to the intervention and then you have actually deliver it, you have evaluate it. And there were some interventions that started out really authoritarian, so outsiders designed them. But then they went into the communities to do them to the community and they realized they were going to have a problem commuting, um, recruiting. So they changed to a more negotiated stance and got the community to help them recruit. And it started to become more successful. And then they got to the point where they had the right number of people in the study and they took the control back from the community and told them how to deliver the intervention and people dropped out and became less successful. So there was a pattern there no matter how you looked at it. So we're also suggesting that this is something you probably have to look at with some interventions because it affects them all the way through. Can you repeat the authors that, that, about whom you mentioned? About it was Tones and Green. They wrote a health promotion book. I can't remember the exact title of it right now, but um, it was actually reissued with the authors in the opposite order. And I think that the last edition was 2010, if I remember right. So this is one of the interventions they ended up with at the end of the day. And just to finish off the story, what did they do for interventions? Um, because it was swampy land, um, difficult for the children to play outside. They built boardwalks above the ground. So they had like um, marsh walks, forest walks, and they built them like, like exercise or activity trails. So that was one thing they did. Um, they negotiated with the teachers. They built more physical activity into the day. The teachers were concerned about them losing some of their study time. So they came up with activities where they were learning at the same time as they were doing something active. With the healthy eating, they negotiated with the community store to get different foods in, and the council elders um, talked to people in the community and decided um, how they wanted to shift the balance between the unhealthy and the healthy food that was coming in, so the community kind of agreed on changing some of the food that was brought in. Um, in that kind of culture, they really respect what the elders are saying, so if the elders said something was going to be a certain way, people, are, people would tend to try it. And they started putting out newsletters with recipes in them, and in each one of the newsletters, the elders had recommendations. It said, the elders are saying, and they had some ideas for people to try. Um, they didn't call it diabetes. They called it healthy families, strong children. 
as a more neutral kind of kind of set of words. Um, and, and the list goes on. I mean, it was multiple interventions at the end of the day. Was there anything specifically targeted towards conception of health? Yes, and what they did was they used this study here, and the conclusions that came out of it was we have to talk to parents about how activity could fit in with happiness and health. And so they came at it from the point of view of fun, of being together. So they, they reframed it that way. Um, and they kind of used the, um, and they, they found this in the research actually. They said, um, if you're telling people, um, children to eat healthy food because it's good for them, right away you're putting them off. So rather than coming at it by telling people to be active because it's good for you, we need to come at it from the point of view of you know, what makes them happy, what are enjoyable activities for them. Which again, it's not rocket science, is it? But um, that was the way that they framed it. So at the end of the day, what percent of children aged two to five are now overweight in that population? Um, it went down by 8%. Mm -hmm. And parents lost weight which wasn't the original intention, but they did, and the parents have maintained the weight loss now over five years. So it's working. It's slow. I mean, you were saying that. But, but it is working. It's, you know, it's, there's a downward trend in that. Yeah. 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 And the other um, clusters we found, the other studies that had families of studies together, mm -hmm. they used the same approach and they're coming up with the same thing. So um, if you look across them, it's working. So that's the story of uh, one, one controversial thing about mixed methods and how do you. And I guess what I'm saying is when you're combining them, I think we need to question where the study ideas originally came from because if I'm combining a study that has that authoritarian stance here, if I'm bringing that into my review, and I'm bringing in another study that seems to have the same intervention, how am I going to know whether they both, whether, I'm not being very clear here. If I bring two diabetes education studies into my review, they both say they did the same educational program, but they have nothing about the kind of stance they used. How do I know they were the same intervention? I don't, and, and I think that there, there might be an issue there. You know, one of them might be more acceptable than the other, but we have no way of knowing. So... What you're saying is that the intervention has other trappings that are actually more important than, than the intervention. The context. Because yeah. there's an interaction between the context and the intervention, and that interaction is how was it designed in the first place and what was the process of, of offering it and implementing it. By making your job easier to do this, we need to be ensuring that editors insist that that contextual information is included, with yeah. the paper, be it online, not necessarily in the printed version. But at the moment, we're so restricted with words that that really important contextual information just cannot make it into a paper. There's been more fussed about which statistical test we used than the really important stuff, which is the contextual. Well, I would say they're both, they're both important, but maybe there's something about um, change the guidelines a little bit, the criterion for what you're reporting in your study. Um, because right now when we look at articles, you have um, an introduction or a background section to the article, and that background section traditionally um, talks about research that's been done somewhere else 
and uh, you use that to justify your approach and also to identify the gap in the research. But maybe there's some way of asking people to make that bit a little shorter so that you can use some of the word count there to describe the context so that the introduction would actually look like um, research has been done that says so-and-so. Um, there was a gap in this research and th this is what I think we need to do, but then follow that before you get to the research question with this is the context we'll be working in and based on this context, mm -hmm. this is what we think we need to be doing to, to adapt the intervention. Which journal? All of them. Because <laughs> <laughs> one part of that debate has started. Yeah. Um, mm. So Paul Glasio and his group um, in Australia, Bond, they, they're doing a big push on describing the intervention. Yeah. Okay. That's right. So yeah. they're doing a big push on actually making, making explicit your interventions. Mm. Because they did a, they did a, quick, um, a quick, quick and dirty systematic review and found that I think don't quote me, but it was almost half of them couldn't be yes, couldn't be um, <laughs> couldn't be implemented just by reading the article. Yeah. And then they went to the authors and they got some more information for another sort of 20 or 30 percent of that. Yeah. Um, so then they're, they're putting a lot of effort into yeah. trying to. Yeah. They've actually developed a framework called the Tidia framework. Yeah. Um, the first author is Tammy Hoffman, and that's published this mm -hmm. year, I think. And so they're, they're saying that that should be used alongside the consult guideline for describing the actual intervention, the behavioural inter the, the intervention, who does it, you know, what training they mm. have, where it, they're, they're getting a little bit into context, but it's predominantly mm. on the intervention. But they're starting to think about, yeah, who does it, how much yeah. training, yeah. Um, and what tools are used, what resources. Mm. So that, that's one step. Mm. But it's not yeah. the, the I think this authoritarian negotiated stuff is really important because mm. one of the reasons my, I understand that Australia was very successful with the HIV AIDS epidemic was that the whole program for what do we do about this was done at the level of the, with the in, in association with the most at risk communities. Whereas I understand in the US it was more of an authoritative approach mm -hmm. to an intervention and we had taken the other. Mm -hmm. we, we did really well really quickly mm. and I think it, so I think that that, that is very important mm. I think that's the part that we do really mm -hmm. more in our CTs. There is some kind of barrier to it. Um, I don't know if it's about uh, too much challenging of the way things are done right now um, and I'm saying that because um, there's something in England called the Schools for Public Health Research and it's a consortium that was set up by the government of seven universities in the UK because they said we have to start working together on public health research. So we had a meeting in Sheffield um, about a month ago and I brought this up and I described it, what we were finding out. And um, the people in this, in this group are international researchers. So they have long track records and the only one of these people was saying we should make this a priority for the school and the rest of them were just you know, it's not, not fitting in with the funding priorities or... It's almost like it's a, it's, it needs to be introduced more gradually, I guess. I mean, we are, none of us want to think our, our, the interventions we spent so hard designing are inappropriately authoritarian, you know. So I think it's a, a hard thing to get your head around.
need very specific design outcomes that you're going to measure and you're going yeah. to say exactly what you're going to do at every stage. And then you get this, where this has to allow flexibility and yeah. change to work. And then the transparency becomes a very difficult thing to achieve because you're introducing complexity, which of course we all know happens in our research projects. But we're only asked to write it up in a specific way yeah. to demonstrate scientific transparency. So yeah. both those are kind of coming into conflict. It is. It is, and it's really hard to write the grant applications for that reason, yeah. because um, if you have people that are um, experienced in reviewing RCT protocols, reviewing your grant application, they come back and they tell you you're being too vague, and they don't understand that there's a reason that you're doing that, so it's hard. So yeah, I don't know what direction it will go in. I know that more of the, commu the part community-based participatory stuff is being funded than it was before. So that's good news. And more of it is making its way into mainstream health journals. So that's also good news, but who knows? Can you get funding from the actual funding body? Because sometimes they'll top slice 10% for monitoring purposes and attach an academic to, to the project for that to do this kind of monitoring uh, according to a framework of annual reports and, and monitoring outputs to show that they're targeting the outcomes that they're, they're, they're trying to achieve. And that can lead to papers. And surely the funding would be very much um, in line with proving uh, an effect. Mm -hmm. so. I'm thinking about that. Because <laughs> that's an idea, isn't it? So I did this with, uh, a good few years ago in Scotland. Yeah. It was funded by the European Social Fund. Yeah. And we had a set of targets meet like improvement uh -huh. and youth engagement and so on. And then we gave the money to local projects yeah. that applied to us for funding. Uh, that's to the council. And then they, the projects were given a set of outputs uh -huh. to achieve every year. And then they would write up an annual report of what they'd done. And I collated all of these reports mm -hmm. and sent them off to the European Social Fund and the Scottish Government. And, uh, and that as I said, I was funded by the top slice mm -hmm. of 10% for monitoring. Mm -hmm. and that seemed to be quite successful. Mm -hmm. And we didn't have to worry so much about getting funding from research councils. Yes, that's a really good idea. Because then you're in a position to not only collate but review what they're doing and make some, make some uh, observations, like from a methodological point of view, too. The outputs part is interesting because... Um, What's coming up with some of these things now is that the outputs and the outcomes, like I said earlier, the people value or that they're achieving sometimes are not the ones that were originally set by the funding body, but the participants are saying they're more meaningful. And so I think there's a piece of work that needs to be done there, particularly around um, social outcomes, because um, I know in the peer support review they said for a lot of these health outcomes, people need to have social outcomes first before they can get to the health outcomes. You know, people that are isolated need to be more socially connected before they can manage to give up smoking or, or be more physically active. And why aren't we measuring those? And, and, and now some of the organizations we're working with are saying, we, we want money to measure those first, and then we'll show how they're linked to the health. But right now we have this kind of black hole in the middle because those intermediate outcomes aren't being, aren't being collected. Anyhow, so thank you for listening to the challenges that we're having. <laughs>